Dr. Jessica Schwartzman's research goes above and beyond when it comes to helping improve the quality of life of the neurodiverse community. She has researched critical real-world problems such as COVID and suicide as they have affected adolescents with autism and study them to find solutions to such serious current issues. She's a professional in the diagnosis and treatment of anxiety disorders and autism and has utilized cognitive behavioral approaches in a positive, unique way to target the needs of autistic youth and adults. So I have a younger brother who is diagnosed with autism and intellectual disability. Um, and so I've had uh, both a personal and professional interest in it mm. over the past, you know, 20, how old is he now, 27 years. Um, so that was kind of my first intro. And then in terms of kind of research, I just really fell in love with working with autistic people um, at UCLA and then chased it at Stanford and now here at Vanderbilt. So that's a little bit of how I got started in it. So how have you brought your own knowledge and expertise to the Frist Center? So I would say, you know, I don't work directly at the Frist Center. I'm a member, which yeah. means that I um, contribute in various ways to the research projects. Um, mm. My only kind of real work, I'm new to being a member, so we worked, um, the Frist Center gave me um, and my mentor, Blythe Corbett, some funding to look at um, the intersection of depression and unemployment in autism, both being uh, more prevalent problems um, in autistic people than non-autistic people. And right. so um, that is actually just about to come out, but we oh. basically found by doing a review that depression, unsurprisingly, has pretty significant and negative impacts for autistic people in trying to get jobs, to stay employed, to have good customer or client or coworker relations. Um, and we don't actually see the opposite to be true. Yeah. What I mean by that is we don't see that employment Cost has a lot of protective factors in the way that we maybe think it does. Mm. Um, it's possible that employment um, obviously has financial security, gives people a sense of independence and things like that. But when it comes to mitigating depression or suicide risk, we don't really see a benefit. So it's kind of a, a step into work that I think the Frist Center is really interested in and how do we think about mental health um, outcomes in autistic people as they're seeking employment, as they're maintaining employment and trying to enjoy employment as well. Yeah. It's, it's kind of interesting and I think it's to say that employment is probably not a singular thing, right? I think yeah. employment has social interaction, which may be more stressful for autistic people. Um, employment may be unstructured, unpredictable, lots right. of changes. So um, I think without accommodations or real like sensitive planning, I could see how employment uh, might not have a buffering effect against depression that it might in non-autistic yeah. people. Um, so I've noticed you you've worked with a lot of like Latinx populations, um, and as like a general basis, do you notice any like not defects but like almost faults in like treatment techniques and inventories and then like diagnostic questionnaires when using them to diagnose and treat various like ethnic or racial groups? Yeah, whew, that's a great question. I think it's a huge challenge to autism research and clinical service across the board. I think the majority of our tools, our treatments, and our research are largely pulling from white or Caucasian populations. And so I think um, to really take important steps forward, there's kind of a couple key ingredients. One would be community engagement. 
other people call it participatory research from the start, right? So meeting with whether it's, um, you know, families from Ecuador or families from Guatemala, again, keeping in mind that Latinx is a very large uh, kind of too broad of a term and really thinking about what are the specific cultural contexts yeah. that people are coming from. So engaging those communities from the start, right? If you want to offer a new treatment or if you want to develop a new screening measure or if you want to run a study, asking a lot of different people from that population, from that community, what they think and what's important to them, I think is a really crucial starting point regardless of what the goal is, and then continuing to involve those community members throughout the project, right? So as you're recruiting, as you're testing out a new treatment. So I think, um, again, having community engagement from start to finish, and even in sharing the message, right? Like, how do you share what you found with different communities? It shouldn't come from people that aren't in that community to really be led by the community members who are invested and engaged in the work. So I would say across the board, that's a primary ingredient. And then I think a second really needed area is we just need, um, well, not just need, it's (laughs) such a complex issue, but I I would say, uh, make sure and put that I said it's a complex issue. (laughs) Um, You know, I think that just we need to have increased funding for this type of research, right, that involves communities from start to finish um, and allows us to really adapt and modify or even, you know, I would argue that we need to just create things from scratch rather than trying to fit existing templates largely built on white cisgender males to different populations. So I've noticed you've done like a lot of um, like this, I don't know how to pronounce it, like the suicidality aspect. So I I never considered that kind of aspect of ASD. So why do you think autistic youth are more prone to suicidal thoughts and behaviors? Great questions (laughs) that have long answers. Um, (laughs) This is a hard interview. (laughs) No, that's, this is great. You've clearly done your homework. So, okay. In the U.S., adolescent suicide is the second leading cause of death. I mean, it's a huge issue, right? And I think some of the work that's come out in the past decade is telling us that autistic youth are over seven times more likely Mm -hmm. to die prematurely by suicide. So our population really is at substantial risk. And so it's been encouraging to see that the National Institute of Health and other funding agencies are really trying to support research and clinical service targeting this real challenge. Yeah. You know, I think suicide in non-autistic populations is a really dynamic process. There's not one reason why people think about suicide, but some of the ones that we're, you know, seeing in autism, some of which are the same in non-autistic populations, is... um, kids of gender diverse identities right so whether they identify as transgender not gender non-binary gender diversity can be a risk factor for suicide both in autistic and non-autistic youth we also know that trauma is a huge risk factor that can look like bullying which we know is more common in autism and um, that can look like abuse or neglect which is also more common in autistic people um, so i think that's another primary area and then what we think a lot of is kind of what my work focuses on is this idea of social disconnection and loneliness Mm. we know that loneliness is a huge risk factor for many adverse outcomes whether it's depression suicide risk physical illness and things like that and so if autistic people experience greater difficulties in 
forming or maintaining friendships, whatever it looks like for them, they're much more likely to be lonely, right? Which has a lot of negative effects. So um, all to say, I don't think there's one reason why autistic folks are at elevated risk, but we think that these are some of the reasons why. And so starting to, now that we know that, build out plans um, and ways to kind of intervene from a much more sensitive perspective than maybe we have in the past. Yeah, that's awesome. I think it's, you know, what you're noticing is is kind of something that we see in research. And it's important to distinguish between gender diversity and sexual orientation. Right. right? So folks that identify as transgender male or female or gender non-binary, that happens much more frequently in autistic people, both in youth and adults. And there's been really fantastic research on that, emphasizing that gender fluidity, whatever it may look like, occurs more often in autism. In terms of the other identity of sexual orientation, right, again, our attraction to a particular type of person, that is also tends to be more diverse and fluid in autistic people than non-autistic people. Um, It's a little outside of kind of my understanding of why those things happen, but, you know, there's a lot of really great research that looks at both of those identities and really highlighting that they occur more frequently in autistic people. Yeah, that's interesting. I recently did a TED Talk event at my school. They had like a TEDx youth event and I spoke on the science of kindness. I saw that like kindness promotes empathy and a more understanding community. How can kindness be practiced in cognitive behavioral approaches and techniques? I think that kindness is similar to, you know, related targets that we think about in cognitive behavioral therapy, whether that's um, belonging or um, empathy or, um, you know, kind of trying to cultivate what we think about in terms of like altruism, right? And looking out for other people. And I would say, that one of the things I was really struck by at the International Society for Autism Research this year was a lot of emphasis on stigmatization of mm-hmm. autistic people and buying into this idea that they have no empathy or lower empathy or kind of these old myths that I think mm-hmm. have really unfortunately perpetuated a lot of our society. And so I think in terms of cognitive behavioral approaches for non-autistic people, if they're interested in engaging neurodivergent people, I think it'd be really important to think about kindness, right? Mm. And really thinking about in order to be kind, I think one aspect of that is really understanding people's lived actual experiences, right? So that may be you know, encouraging uh, your non-autistic clients to get involved in a neurodivergent community group or spending time with people who are neurodivergent and really learning from their experiences rather than buying into a lot of the myths that I think have not been helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think in terms of cognitive behavioral purchase for autistic people, I would flip it on its head a little bit, right? I would say that self-kindness would be something that I would really want to focus on. I think much of the stigma, right, that I mentioned in the general population creates a lot of negative beliefs about themselves and autistic people. I encounter it a lot in the work that I do. And so I think if we were to kind of cultivate this idea that autistic identity is something that can be celebrated and encouraged for both the strengths that it brings and maybe adaptations or difficulties that might occur. Mm-hmm. Um, I think by doing that through some more self-kindness and recognition of a lot of the work that autistic people put into everyday situations would be one way that I would think about it.
So you did some work with COVID-19. So I was wondering, what do you think will be the long-term effects of COVID-19 quarantine on individuals with ASD or other neurodevelopmental disorders? Wow, these questions, I love them. They're so all-encompassing. Um, so, okay, maybe I'll talk to what we found. So okay. my mentor at Vanderbilt, Blythe Corbett, did a study kind of early in the pandemic and we looked and we basically followed a set of adolescents and parents throughout the pandemic for um, kind of a pre and a post, right? And mm. some of the things that we found, and I can share the paper if you haven't seen it already, yeah. is that um, parent stress in parents of autistic youth was substantially higher. Right. And we know that parent stress can have a lot of adverse outcomes on the parents themselves the autistic child and their family system, right. right? And so thinking about even the same pandemic being experienced differentially by different people mm. tells us that we're probably going to have to do a lot of work in the area of parent stress, right? Mm-hmm. And kind of family well-being. And also we see in autistic youth, we do see higher anxiety, right? Mm-hmm. And we know that autistic youth are more likely to experience anxiety than non-autistic youth, but COVID may have kind of added effects to that anxiety that really exacerbated. So I think mm-hmm. moving forward, um, kind of at least what I've seen in clinic, it's really working with teens and parents about how to safely reintegrate into the world, right? Whether right. it's going back to school in person or going out to the community or resuming activities that they loved. It's helping families think about how to do that safely from a physical safety perspective, but also thinking about mental safety, right? What's gonna make them feel comfortable? What are they gonna maybe not feel as anxious or stressed about? And trying to focus on that moving forward. There's a lot of great work outside of, uh, of our team. There's been international studies and, and adults and youth that really highlight, hey, this is a really big challenge. So yeah. I think moving forward, again, the key, key, key piece is engaging autistic people in what they right. think is needed as we kind of you know transition to this yeah. next phase of the pandemic. Right. What can you say to young women interested in STEM? Um, I would say that we need more of them. That will probably be the case until the end of time. And I would encourage women that are interested in STEM to get connected or to build a women in STEM network. Mm -hmm. There are several really great established organizations across the U.S. for things like that. But even thinking about how to form connections with people where you already are, whether that's in high school, college, if it's in you know, post back if it's in marketing, if it's in business, whatever aspect of STEM women might be in, I think there's um, a lot of benefits that come from forming a network and having a collective effort. Um, So thinking about how do we advocate for changes in the systems that we work in so that people have equivalent and achievable benchmarks. Um, All really big and lofty (laughs) goals, but I think I'm really excited, you know, I'm not old. I don't think of myself as old, and all my teenagers tell me that I'm not. But I think I'm particularly excited by kind of your generation and early 20s folks because I think there's a lot of conversation about this, right? People are really aware of it, and I think whenever we get talking about something a lot, it is promising that there will be change. So I'm hopeful that that generation, your generation, like folks like you, continue to do stuff like this because I think it's super important. Yeah. 
Thank you.